Lesson 7 for May 7 through to 13, Lord of Jews and Gentiles. Sabbath afternoon, May 7. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the past week and what it brings to us. There are trials and troubles throughout the world. There are issues that we face individually, but we know that at all times we can retreat to be with you. We can step aside, open your word, and be encompassed by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we open your word this week, we pray for that infilling, that we may see what Jesus did, and in our lives be able to replicate that with his help. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Let's read that again. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus says explicitly, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. No question, Christ's earthly ministry was directed mostly toward the nation of Israel. But, as the whole Bible shows, Israel wasn't the only people God cared about. The reason God chose Israel was so that he could bless all people on earth. This is what the Lord says. We read in Isaiah 42, verses 5 to 7, The Creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. It was through Israel, or more specifically, through the Messiah who would arise from Israel, that God would reach out to the whole world. This week we'll see a little more of the Lord's outreach to all in need of salvation. Sunday, May 8, Feeding the Hungry One of the most well-known acts of Jesus is the feeding of the 5,000, besides women and children, as it says in Matthew 14, verse 21. Yet, as with everything else in the New Testament, this story doesn't occur without a context that helps us understand even more deeply the meaning of what Jesus had done. Question. Read Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through to 21. What happened right before the miraculous feeding, and what role might that event have played in what followed? Well, let's begin John chapter 14 and verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, 
This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put her to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head, here, on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Put yourself in the position of the disciples at that time. John the Baptist, clearly a man of God, just had his head chopped off. His disciples knew that because they were the ones who told Jesus. Though the texts don't say, it must have been incredibly discouraging for them. No doubt it put their faith to the test. However, after what Jesus did next, their faith must have been given quite a boost, especially after such a letdown. There is, however, a much deeper meaning to this story, regardless of how it might have increased the disciples' faith. Jesus' action of feeding the Jewish people reminded everyone of the manner that God had provided to the Israelites in the wilderness. As John Pauline writes in John, the Abundant Life Bible Amplifier, pages 139 and 140, the tradition arose within Judaism that the Messiah would come on a Passover and that along with his coming, manna would begin to fall again. So, when Jesus fed the 5,000 just before Passover, it should not surprise anyone that the crowd might begin to speculate whether he was the Messiah and whether he he was about to do an even greater miracle, feed everyone all the time by restoring the manna. End of quote. This was exactly the kind of Messiah the people wanted, a Messiah that would tend to their external needs. 
At this time, the crowds are ready to make Jesus king. But Jesus hadn't come to be king, and his refusal would greatly disappoint them. They had their expectations, and when they were not met, many would turn away from Jesus, even though he had come to do so much more than what their narrow and worldly expectations were. And so to finish the day, in what ways might your expectations of what you expect from God be too narrow? Monday, May 9, Lord of all creation. After the miraculous feeding, Jesus ordered his disciples into their boat. He wanted them away from the mayhem and pressure. A good teacher will shelter his or her students from what they're not yet ready to handle. Calling his disciples, writes Ellen White, Jesus bids them take the boat and return at once to Capernaum, leaving him to dismiss the people. They protested against the arrangement, but Jesus now spoke with authority he had never before assumed toward them. They knew that further opposition on their part would be useless, and in silence they turned toward the sea. And that's a quote from Desire of Ages, page 378. Question. Read Matthew chapter 14, verses 23 to 33. What do these verses reveal about who Jesus was and the nature of salvation? Well, we'll start at verse 22 of Matthew chapter 14. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him, and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. A revealing moment occurs when the terrified disciples are wondering who is walking on the water toward them. Jesus says to them, It is I, do not be afraid, in verse 27. The phrase, it is I, is another way of translating the Greek phrase ego eimi, that's E-G-O, another word, E-I-M-I, which means I am. This is the name of God himself, as we read in Exodus chapter 3 verse 14, and God said to Moses, 
I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Scripture time and again has the Lord in control of all nature. Psalm 104, for example, clearly shows that God is not only the creator, but also the sustainer, and that it's through his power that the world continues to exist and that the laws of nature operate. Let's have a look at Psalm 100. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him, and bless his name, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. There's nothing here that hints at the God of deism, who creates the world and then leaves it alone. Jew or Gentile, we all owe our committed existence to the sustaining power of the same God who stilled the sea. As we read in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Peter's cry, Lord, save me, should echo our own, because if the Lord Jesus doesn't save us, who will? Peter's helplessness in that situation reflects our own in the face of what our fallen world throws at us. And so to finish today, think about just how helpless you really are in the sense of being at the mercy of forces so much greater than you and that you can't control. How should this reality help strengthen your dependence upon Jesus? Tuesday, May 10, The Hypocrite's Heart Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13 reads, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honour me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Though this was the Lord speaking to ancient Israel, the question is, what message is here for the church today? What are the two main issues that the Lord is warning them about, and how can we be sure that we aren't doing the same thing? Many centuries after Isaiah wrote these words, Jesus quotes them while in a controversy with the religious leaders. Question. Read Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through to 20. What is the specific issue here, and how does Jesus address it? Matthew 15, beginning at verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, 
Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honour your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honour his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. At some point after he returns to Capernaum, Jesus gets into a debate with the Jewish leaders about what makes a person unclean. The teachers had added to the law all kind of regulations about external cleanliness. For example, you had to wash your hands in a certain way. But Jesus' disciples weren't bothering with this regulation, and when the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem pointed it out, Jesus responded as he did. In short, Jesus strongly condemns what's so easily a trap for anyone, hypocrisy. Who hasn't at some point been guilty of this, condemning someone for an action, either verbally or in your own heart, even though you have done as or were doing the same thing or worse? We all, if not careful, have a tendency to see the faults of others while being blind to our own. Hence, being a hypocrite tends to come naturally to us all. And so to finish today... We all hate hypocrisy in others. It is always so easy to see hypocrisy in others too. How can we make sure that our ability to see hypocrisy in others isn't just a manifestation of it in ourselves? Wednesday, May 11, Crumbs from the Table.
After feeding, healing and preaching to his own Jewish people, Jesus makes a dramatic decision. He leaves the area of the Jews and enters the region of the outsiders, the Gentiles. Question. Read Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through to 28. How are we to understand this story? Matthew 15, beginning at verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith, let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. In many ways, this isn't an easy story to read because we're without the benefit of voice tone and facial expressions. At first, Jesus seems to ignore this woman. Then, when he does talk to her, his words seem very harsh. In verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What if you tried this approach? Someone asks if they may have some of your chips, and you respond, It is not right to toss my chips to the dogs. Not exactly a way to win friends, is it? However, here are a few things to consider. First, it is true that at this time the Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, bringing the image of mangy dogs running the street. But Jesus uses the more affectionate Greek term small dog or puppy dog here, conjuring up domestic dogs kept in the home and fed from the table. Second, this Canaanite woman calls Jesus the son of David. This shows her familiarity with Jesus' Jewishness. Like a good teacher, Jesus dialogues with her and perhaps tests her. Craig Keener writes in The Gospel of Matthew, a socio-rhetorical commentary, page 417, perhaps he is requiring her to understand his true mission and identity, lest she treat him as one of the many wandering magicians to whom Gentiles sometimes appealed for exorcisms. Yet he is surely summoning her to recognise Israel's priority in the divine plan, a recognition that for her will include an admission of her dependent status. One may compare Elisha's requirement that Naaman dip in the Jordan, despite Naaman's preference for the Aramean rivers, Abana and Farfa, ultimately leading to Naaman's acknowledgement of Israel's God and land. End of quote. Finally, it's likely this woman was an upper-class Greek woman who was part of a class that, as uh, he continues, routinely take the bread belonging to the impoverished Jews residing in the vicinity of Tyre. 
Now, Jesus reverses the power relations, for the bread Jesus offers belongs to Israel first. This Greek must beg help from an itinerant Jew. End of quote. This is not an easy passage, but we have to trust Jesus. By dialoguing with this woman, Jesus dignifies her, just as he did the woman at the well. She leaves with her daughter healed and her faith in the Son of God ignited. Thursday, May 12, Lord of the Gentiles. Question. Read Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through to 39, and compare it with Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through to 21. What are the similarities and the differences between the two stories? Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 29. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up to the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitudes, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were four thousand men, besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. Then if we go back to Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21, we have a different story. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments that remained. 
Now, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Many people don't realize that there are two feedings of the multitudes in the Gospels. The first for the Jews, the second for the Gentiles. In both instances, Jesus had compassion for the people. It's amazing, this image of thousands of Gentiles coming out to be taught, loved and fed by this young rabbi. Today, looking back and understanding the universality of the gospel, after all, most people reading this right now are not Jews, we can easily miss just how incredible and unexpected something like this must have appeared to the people, both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. No question, Jesus was surely taking everyone out of their comfort zones. Yet, this was always God's plan, to draw all peoples of the earth to him. A startling verse in the Hebrew Scriptures testifies to this truth in Amos chapter 9, verse 7. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kephtor, and the Arameans from Kerr? What is God saying here? That he's interested in the affairs of not only Israel, but all people? He's interested in Philistines? A careful reading of the Old Testament reveals this truth again and again, even though it had become so obscure through the centuries that by the time the New Testament church was formed, many of the early believers had to learn this basic Bible truth. Question. Read Romans chapter 4 verses 1 to 12. In what ways is the gospel and the universality of the gospel captured in these verses? Romans chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was he accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. 
Friday, May 13. A Christian was speaking to students on a secular campus about the existence of God. After using all the common arguments, he took a different tack, saying, You know, when I was about the age of most of you, and not believing in God, every now and then, when something would convict me that maybe God did exist, I always pushed the notion out of my mind. Why? Because something told me that, if indeed God did exist, then, considering how I was living, I was in deep trouble. The mood shifted instantly. Dozens of consciences, in sync, started grinding against themselves. It was almost as if the temperature in the room rose from the friction behind all those suddenly uncomfortable faces. He clearly struck a nerve. These students, not Christians, and thus probably not too concerned about the Ten Commandments, nevertheless still sensed that all was not right with their lives morally, and that if there were a God they would have a lot to answer for. As Christians, however, people who should be attuned to God's moral standards, we don't have to feel uncomfortable when confronted with the reality of a moral God, and that's because of the promise of the gospel. Whether Jew or Gentile, when confronted by our sinfulness, we can take refuge in the righteousness of Christ offered to us by faith. As it says in Romans 3.28, apart from the deeds of the law. When we become acutely aware of our sin, we can claim the promise that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, as it says in Romans 8.1. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. In Desire of Ages, page 403, we read, Without distinction of age or rank or nationality or religious privilege, all are invited to come unto him and live. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. The first one, read Matthew 16, verses 1 to 12. What do you think Jesus means when he says, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees? At first the disciples thought Jesus meant literal yeast, during Passover, the Jews were careful to get rid of leaven, so they thought Jesus was instructing them not to buy bread with leaven. But Jesus had in mind something much deeper. What was it? Let's begin Matthew 16 and verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? 
Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak of you concerning bread? But to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And question number two. The love of Christ for all people should be the message that emanates first and foremost from Christianity. After all, we are struggling sinners too. None of us has any hope outside of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the message we send can at times seem to be one of judgment, arrogance and superiority. Following the lead of Jesus, how can we as a church better show our compassion for all people? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled The Bridge That God Built, Part 1. Frank Colomb was a pastor in the Maramuni River area of Papua New Guinea. In this isolated and untamable region, he ministered to 21 village churches, scattered among the steep mountains and valleys of his territory. One Friday, he set out to visit a village on the other side of the river. This was no easy journey as there were no roads. Pastor Frank had only a narrow foot track to follow. First he climbed up the hill behind his house and crossed the airstrip where the mission planes land to deliver supplies and visitors and occasionally evacuate medical emergency patients to the hospital, which was only an hour away by plane but several days by foot. After crossing the airstrip he began the steep descent down to the Maramuni River. This river, like so many rivers in Papua New Guinea, is swift-flowing, especially during the rainy season. Over the years, the river has cut deep gorges through the soft soil and rock, and now the river flowed wide and deep. Pastor Frank followed the narrow winding trail that led to a bridge that crossed the torrent. The bridge was a simple structure woven from bush vines. It didn't look safe, but the pastor was used to such bridges and he crossed the river without any trouble. Word reached the village that the pastor was coming, and happy church members ran out to greet him. They didn't often have their pastor come to minister to them. Nobody complained about the rain that fell almost non-stop. Pastor Frank ministered to the people, baptising new believers, marrying excited couples, and dedicating new babies born since his last visit. When it came time for him to return, villagers walked part way with him to express their love, and some gave him gifts of food for his journey home. One of the believers decided to go with Pastor Frank back to the mission station. As they walked along the trail that led to the river, they met some people who announced, You might as well turn back. The river has washed away the bridge. It's impossible to cross. But Pastor Frank told his companion, I really need to get back home. We're doing God's work, and He will provide a way for us to cross the river. 
The two men came to the river and saw for themselves that the bridge had been washed away. The river flowed so fast, deep and wide, that there was no way to get across. The men stopped and prayed that God would provide a way for them to cross the river. And to hear the answer to that prayer, we'll need to read next week's lesson because this story is to be continued in next week's Inside Story. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.